Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are breaking temperature records everywhere in BC right now. It was the coldest January 13th in more than 100 years in Salmon Arm, Revelstoke, and Cranbrook on the weekend. And just cold everywhere. So it's safe to say that we are not used to the kinds of temperatures that we have been seeing out there, right? Yeah, we're making the most of it. We've got people skating on our frozen ponds outside. But there are also some consequences perhaps that we are not accustomed to, like our plants. You know, a lot of people probably going outside and seeing, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't look right. My garden looks like it is dead and dying because of the cold weather and the impact that's happening on the plants. So we thought, let's bring in Brian Minter, gardening expert and co-owner of Minter Country Garden Store to help us out with that. Good morning, Brian. Well, it's any good morning. And you're right. It's been pretty brutal uh, on most plants uh, simply because we've had such a mild winter up to this point, not a lot of frost to harden things off. And uh, I feel very badly for so many people in apartments anywhere they can't, uh, you know, put the plants anywhere. It's a little tough to put them inside. So it's been a real challenge. And at this point here, we kind of have to wait and see how bad the damage is to to so many different types of plants. And we're not used to that. I guess there's probably a lot of gardeners out there, Brian, or people who have plants, maybe they don't consider themselves a gardener, um, that they don't realize that, hey, when the weather turns, you should probably put a cover on that. Yeah, and you know, Simi, this is something for for many, uh, we have a new generation of gardeners uh, right now in terms of the millennial folks, uh, and they're awfully good, they're very concerned about nature and so on, but perhaps not a lot of experience in terms of dealing with so many different plants. And uh, for uh, the annuals, uh, a lot of people have, there's pretty tough annuals like geraniums and dracaena palms and so on, plants that aren't really super hardy, unless they were brought inside or in a protected area or covered, uh, they are at this point going to be just simply not going to make it. That's the, the other thing. The next thing is, and to me, most plants have a hardiness zone. And uh, I, I would say Vancouver is zone 7, the valley is zone 6. So if you have plants that are in those zones, they're fine. The problem is when you put them in containers, you lose a zone of hardiness because you take them out of the ground where they have security of you know the soil to protect the roots. And so that's that's really part of the, the bigger problem. And what you have to do in those situations is, is, first of all, and I know it's hard for some folks where they live, but to get them out of the wind, because the wind chill factor is such a, a real dramatic change for so many plants when they're trying to, in fact, you know, it's cold enough already, but then you drop the temperature further. And today we have frost blankets or insulate materials to put around. And the problem is so many folks just think, well, I'll just cover them. I'll put some burlap around them and so on. And it's the insulating factor that they're missing. And so you, you, that's really critical. Uh, even in most nurseries right now, uh, you can see a lot of their outdoor trees are covered with, you know, cloth to protect the roots and so on. And that's really the big one. So a couple of things. Number one, if the plants are hardy and uh, out of the wind, uh, most likely they're going to be okay if they're zoned for that area, especially with a little bit of protection. 
Yeah, if they're a little bit tender, I would look at camellias, for example, many of the beautiful broadleaf plants we have at Grove Denver's. Uh, in the ground, if they're a little bit tender, they're probably going to get make, make it, but get a little bit beat up uh, with the wind chill factor on the leaves, really desiccating and drying the foliage a lot. My bigger problem is, and my real concern is, uh, the roses. Roses are magnificent to have in the garden, but when you get these cold temperatures, even in Vancouver and Victoria, if you don't, in fact, uh, cover the bud union in the bottom with mulch or sawdust or even soil, uh, at least six or eight inches over the top, we don't know for sure if they're going to make it. And at this point here, we can't do anything. Everything's pretty much happened. It's a question of waiting now and seeing what's going to you know, transpire over the next few days as the temperature begins to warm. And one thing, Simi, that's really important, if uh, when the temperature's on the rise and the frost is coming out, if you can thoroughly water your plants, rehydrate the soil and rehydrate the plants and broadleaf plants in particular, get water in the foliage to bring out the frost. That's going to be very, very important. So, and, and that's it. And the other thing is, too, we think, oh, well, it's okay, it's going to be fine. Uh, but uh, we really don't know until the growing season begin, uh, begins right. how badly the frost has damaged the plant. That's okay. really the key factor. Are there some things, Brian, that you can do, that one can do heading into the growing season? Is there an extra boost of fertilizer that these plants need? Something that you, know, you can see, all right, I'm just, they're going to need some extra help. <laughs> and, you know, that's a very good question. Uh, the answer is uh, just simply when the water, uh, you know, using water to uh, you know, again bring the frost out and essentially rehydrate the plant. That's the most important thing. It's a little late to cover things right now unless we do have cold weather coming again. But uh, it's a wait and see because, you know, some plants we think, oh, my gosh, I think they're gone. They're going to be fine. Other plants that look fine, they're going to be gone. So until the growing season begins, until we get consistent warmer temperatures, you're really not going to know uh, what's happened. So there's not a lot we can do uh, at this particular time. Just keep an eye on things. And if we should get about a cold weather, uh, again, re, uh, this time cover them, protect them. That's really the most important thing we can do. But in terms of nutrient and fertilizer, uh, no, there, there's, uh, that's not going to help. And we don't need that until the, the growing season. So it's kind of a wait and see and keep your fingers crossed at the same time that many of your wonderful plants you've had are going to make it. Okay, but some of those balcony plants you're talking about for people who do live in condos or these, they're outdoor, and a lot of them are tropical plants, right? Because they look great and we always think, well, what's the problem, mm-hmm. right? It never gets too cold here. Are they done? Are they dead? Like if they're keeled over and frosted, is that it? Yeah, anything that's tender, anything that's tropical, anything that's annual or a tender perennial, all of those plants are not going to, probably not going to make it. Uh, you never give up. You always hold hope out there. But until, again, we get a, a warmer temperatures, uh, the plant will kind of tell you very quickly if it's in bad shape. It'll, it'll, the stem will become mushy. Uh, the leaves will start dropping off. And a lot of things, indicators that show you that this plant is simply not going to make it. So um, it's a good lesson. That the one thing about gardening to me is we learn uh, every time. You, you sort of think things are going to be okay and they're not. But it's, you know, keeping in mind that uh, they are, are really subject to when this cold weather, needing protection, yeah. we've moved out of the wind. Those are things that we have to always remember. I mean, anything that's a little in the ground where you can mulch it, mulching is probably one of the best things we can do. And and sometimes uh, what I really worry about, Sammy, are a lot of the palms uh, that people didn't get. Oh, so many people have planted those, Brian. Yes, so many I people. I know, I know, I know. And they not only need to be wrapped and protected, but they need something like a heat tape plugged in 
put in the inside to to get the you know uh, protect the severe frost from damaging them. So a lot are hardier than we think. But the problem, as I mentioned earlier, is is the fact that we've had such a mild winter. Uh, we haven't had that hardening off or toughening up pro- process that a lot of plants need to you know uh, you know kind of toughen them up before the frost comes. And that's what we have. So that's the biggest danger right now. And my last worry here is about many of the flowering or winter flowering plants. Uh, some of the um, the witch hazel, the Chinese witch hazel, are so beautiful right now. And uh, the people have the helleborus, the beautiful um, Christmas roses out in their garden right now. They're great pollinators for so many bees as well. Uh, a lot of those are going to be wilted over. It look like they're absolutely dead. Rhododendron leaves are going to be hanging straight down. But, you know, they are pretty tough. And, uh, I, again, depending on we need snow and we need rain to be able to, you know, rehydrate naturally, that would be the best thing that could possibly happen. So it's it's uh, keeping fingers crossed, watching things, but there's not a lot we can do other than proper watering um, as the frost comes out. Right. Two weeks ago, I was seeing pictures, people posting them on social media of spring flowers popping up. And I thought, oh, boy, yeah. that's <laughs> winter. <laughs> It's not over. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we have some very early daffodils up in Chilliwack here. Uh, They're actually starting to bloom right now. And I've seen this before. Uh, The wind kind of knocked them down a bit. Uh, The cold really made them shrivel. Uh, A lot of the stems just laid down. But uh, if we get snow and rain, bulbs are incredibly tough and incredibly hardy. Uh, They will start to come back. It's amazing what they will do. And a lot of folks are worried about bulbs out of the ground right now. And uh, the the leaves are up. They're going to be fine. Is my garlic going to be fine, though? Yeah, I was just going to mention that the critic is going to be great. Hopefully it's in the ground. It is. Even in containers. uh, I talk to a lot of folks up north all the time. And uh, basically, the garlic is incredibly tough, incredibly resilient. And uh, I promise you, the garlic's going to be okay. Okay. Phew. That's what I was worried about. Okay, Brian, thank (laughs) you so much for that this morning. You're so very welcome. And we hope for many plants that that folks see that their plants are going to be okay. We keep our fingers crossed. Well, I mean, if not, your Minter Country Garden Store is going to be very busy in the spring with people replacing all these plants. (laughs) Well, it's about helping people and making sure they're okay. Well, thank you so much for that, Brian. That's Brian Minter, gardening expert and co-owner of Minter Country Garden Store. I think landscape stores are going to be incredibly busy in the spring because a lot of stuff is dying. We're not used to these kinds of temperatures. Our plants aren't necessarily used to these kinds of temperatures. So as Brian points out, some of the stuff in your yard might not survive when things do warm up, though. But some excellent, excellent advice there. This is Mornings with Simi. This weather is having an impact everywhere. And in the... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The sports world in particular. Our Scott Shantz joins us now this morning to talk more about that. Did you hear about this Detroit Red Wings Toronto Maple Leaf situation? No, what happened there? So it's a pretty rare situation that they had to push back the start of the game between Detroit and Toronto because Detroit obviously had trouble getting out of okay. you know Detroit to get to Toronto to make this game. Right. So they had to push back the start of the game by about half an hour. So they even had Toronto Maple Leafs, the organization was on standby to help prep the Red Wings, like get their dressing room ready, wow. all the stuff that okay. they wouldn't normally have to do, right? And so, yeah, you would think... 
easy win for the Leafs? No. Nope. They lost 4-2. Nope. I did know that. I did know that the Leafs lost. That's the most important thing because yeah. I love it when the Leafs lose. And we'll get to the Canucks in a second because this there's awesome news about the Canucks. But the Buffalo story is just True. so fun. The Buffalo True. Bills. Let me just add to the Detroit Red Wings one. They showed up at 6.15. For a, a 7 p.m. hockey game. game. Wow. So that's why they pushed it. So they had an hour to get ready for this game, yeah. which is unbelievable. And normally players roll in at like 4 o'clock, right? Yeah. For a 7 o'clock this game. This is like they actually got, they all got to the arena at 6.15. So, yeah, it's been that kind of thing. But let's talk about these Buffalo Bills because shout out to all the Buffalo Bills fans oh, out there. Oh, it's so fun. So it's like an outdoor arena, right? And it's been snowing so much in Buffalo that uh, they hired basically fans, the Bills Mafia as they're called, to come in and help kind of clear snow to try to get the game. I mean, the game ultimately was delayed, but uh, there was so much snow everywhere. So I had to watch the video to kind of understand this, Simi, because they look like they're having the time of their lives. They're having a blast. And it's so cool to like, there's hundreds of them in there. And the idea that you get to go in and like sort of help your team. But also they were paying 20 bucks an hour, which is great. I guess. I don't know. Oh, come on. I don't know that I would be out there shoveling snow in those temperatures for 20 bucks an hour, but. I can't even imagine how much great publicity the Bills like when have we ever I've never talked about the Buffalo Bills before ever no. and now here we are so the amount of publicity that they got from doing this and the the good vibes that they're getting from their fans for doing this and seeing their fans having a great time doing it I mean that's priceless yeah absolutely you know like they set up these shoots to like move the snow down to the field where they could clear it easier and you know they were like sliding down them guy with his shirt off just very NFL very America yeah totally it was it was super cool to actually watch it. But the Canucks, I want to talk about the Canucks because they are doing so well, Simi. They're first place in the league. They've won five straight in a row. I know John Strait was saying like, eh, it's like a an iffy win against Buffalo. My take on that, and I just want to say this, is like last year when the Canucks were losing all the time, everyone was talking about how, oh, they played well. It's a moral victory. You just have to find a way no, no. to win. Real victory f- is so much better than a moral yeah, victory. Yeah, <laughs> but there was just this, like, who cares how they win? They're winning. It's about finding a way to win. Like, not every win is going to be this beautiful, like, textbook, 5-1 game. They're finding ways to win, and that's what matters. And uh, so, okay, some all-star game is coming up, and you, the Canucks announced that they were sending and Quinn Hughes, and then over the weekend, the fan votes happened, and they added Elias Pettersson, JT Miller, Thatcher Demko, and um, um, I'm blanking on the four, the uh, Brock Besser. Um, so five Canucks all together are going, and of the fan votes, no player got more votes in the NHL than Thatcher Demko, so that's amazing. Rick Tockett, the head coach of the Canucks, also going. They're saying you scrap the name. Just don't call it the All-Star Game. Call it the Canucks Star Game. Listen, Canucks fans should enjoy this. I, I, is it clear that I'm enjoying it? I'm Clearly loving this. you are very much enjoying this. Now, I'm of the um, I don't, a superstitious variety here. Okay. Right? You don't want to talk about it too much, lest it all go away at some point. But I have to say that as the season goes on, oh, yeah. I am enjoying it more and more. And I've also been reading how great this is for youth hockey, that the Canucks are really building a new generation of fans here because the kids are now talking yeah. about them. It's a lot of fun. And Money Puck, uh, uh, like uh, aggregate stats website, gives them the highest chance of winning the Stanley Cup. Up 17.7% chance. Second place, Colorado with 9%. All right, that's the stuff that we like to hear. Scott, thank you for that. You got it. Although I'm sure there's fans out there who will still write me and say, nah, I don't believe it. It's going to go sideways. Hey, that's what it means to be a Canucks fan, right? This is Mornings with Simi. 
Now, while the talk is this cold weather and sort of the fallout from that, well, there is political fallout from that, too. We're going to talk more about that with Vaughn Palmer this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, let's talk about what's being done about this. Well, on the weekend, I wrote a piece on a decision that came down right at the end of last year. The Fortis had applied to the regulator, BC Utilities Commission, to expand its natural gas pipeline network in the Okanagan. And they did it because they said the network was reaching capacity. By the time they got the new line built, um, they would be on the verge of having to cut some new customers off <clears throat> or cap delivery. So they went to the commission and I'm still having trouble digesting this decision from the BC Utilities Commission because what they did was they said, we agree there's a capacity issue here, okay? Uh, we agree that your forecasting, uh, you know, is a reliable system of forecasting and maybe some people might dispute it, but no, no, we think um, there is a capacity issue and it needs to be addressed. They then turned down the application to build a new pipeline. Uh, okay, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I agree. So the rationale for this decision, and I, I find this far-fetched, but the Utilities Commission made the decision. They said, we think in the long run that the BC government's very ambitious climate action plan will reduce natural gas or flatten natural gas consumption in the Okanagan. Therefore, we don't think it's necessary to spend $327 million building uh, 30 kilometers of new pipeline. We think you can probably come up with some kind of a short-term solution. And they told the company to go back and figure it out. Fortis has reacted. Their initial reaction was just one of disappointment. I think I might add to that disbelief. I got a note from somebody in West Kelowna on the weekend, and they've written a letter to the Utilities Commission, and they've said, it's 35 degrees below zero here today. What's your plan to help us deal with natural gas supplies two years from now? Because that's when the system is going to run under natural gas. And I think that's a fair question. I think... I got a lot of reactions, Simi. I think a lot of people in the Okanagan are still scratching their heads over this one, that the commission has so much faith in the NDP government's climate action plan that it actually believes <clears throat> there will be reduced demand for natural gas in the Okanagan starting in two years. Okay, but g given what we saw this weekend, like look yeah. at what's happening next door in Alberta, I, that doesn't seem likely to be the case. I agree. I mean, you've had on your news this morning, I, it, government agencies get carried away with this stuff. You had on your news this morning, BC Hydro is trumpeting how wonderful it was stepping in, filling the demand for electricity in our neighboring Alberta. Well, as you noted... Um, hydro bought about 20% of its electricity supply from outside British Columbia last year. So I keenly await the Hydro press release reconciling those two realities. And I don't know what the answer is, but clearly BC Hydro overall is struggling to fill electricity need in British Columbia. If it weren't struggling it wouldn't be buying electricity from neighboring jurisdictions. So, but this climate action one, Simi, I mean, I, 
have read over the government's climate action plan. There's no question. It has the best of intentions. There's no question that, you know, it's got projections of what will happen in 20 years and in 10 years and five years. But I don't know as though the government would even claim that it can address a shortfall in natural gas demand in the Okanagan within two years. I don't know if though the government would even make that claim, although to date, Simi, there's been very little response from the political arena to this announcement, I think partly because it came down on December the 22nd. Right. And partly because the company itself is, I think, sitting there going, what the hell does this mean? They think we're right. There's a capacity problem. They don't like our solution because they think in the long run, people will stop buying natural gas in the Okanagan because they're all going to climb on the bandwagon uh, of climate action. It doesn't make any doesn't make any sense. We're talking to the Energy Minister Josie Osborne actually this morning, Vaughn. So we can ask about this. Great. But okay, Vaughn, you wrote this piece, and then what kind of reaction did you get? Well, I wrote a piece about how the BC Utilities Commission had turned down an application to expand the natural gas network in the Okanagan. Fortis private company, uh, they were going to spend $327 million of their money on this. They thought they could recover it from demand from ratepayers, but they're risking their money, not public money. Utilities Commission says, well, you know, um, we don't think you're going to need to do that because we think demand for natural gas in the Okanagan will flatten over time. And we think that's because the government's climate action plan is going to work. Uh, The first reaction I got was very, very powerful, and it was from a uh, retired gentleman living in West Kelowna, and he said it's 35 degrees below here today, and he sent me a copy of his letter to the Utilities Commission. The letter said, folks, um, you, uh, I'd like to know what your backup plan for this is because it's 35 below here today, and two years from now, when the network is at capacity to deliver natural gas in our region, Um, It could be 35 below again. He's waiting an answer. Another reaction I got, quite interesting. Simi, you may remember last fall that the BC Business Council put out an analysis of the impact of the BC government's climate action plan. They used the government's own economic model, and they predicted, based on government numbers, there would be a big hit on investment in British Columbia. There would be less investment. It would have job impacts. And again, they're using the government's own numbers. Well, somebody pointed out to me, this sounds suspiciously like what's actually happened already. A $325 million investment in a gas pipeline, it's not going to happen. It's been turned down because of the government's climate action plan. So, you know, you've already got a backlash, uh, not surprisingly, uh, some people are going to call, are already calling. I've seen this in the email, and I think online as well. Are calling on the government to step in and overturn this decision, to step in and say to the commission, "Wait, you know, we have a long-term climate action plan, but <laughs> we we didn't intend that you cancel a pipeline project that's needed within two years, because even we don't think that's how quickly this is going to take effect." Uh, be interesting what the minister says about all this this morning when you talk to the minister. Um, New Democrats sometimes say, well, you know, we have to respect the independence of the B.C. utilities. They sometimes say that. (laughs) They sometimes say that. 
The trouble with that argument in this case is they've repeatedly, the New Democrats, overruled the commission when it suited them. They've ordered the commission to approve rebates and fare caps for both BC Hydro and the BC uh, and ICBC. In fact, Simi, it appears they're getting ready to do that again because the premier's promising a cash rebate from BC Hydro to offset the carbon tax. So they do interfere. Premier himself, Simi, fired the CEO of the BC Utilities Commission last September and replaced him with a hand-picked choice. So the idea that the government doesn't interfere in the commission is true only when the government doesn't want to interfere. And maybe they don't want to in this case. Maybe they think, okay, well, you know, um, in a couple of years, um, maybe they won't need all that natural gas in the Okanagan because we think our climate action plan is going to work. I have my doubts. I think, you know, even the commission admitted the need is imminent. Well, imminent to me means do something now. It takes probably two years, even with approval, to get the gas pipeline built. So it's not like the gas is going to be there overnight. Right. You're saying the need is imminent in the Okanagan, which everybody in the Okanagan, I'm sure, can agree on that. Especially especially right? today. Yeah, especially <laughs> on a day like that we've had the last couple of days. Yeah. The climate action plan is like 10, 20, 30 years sure. into the future. Yeah. That doesn't make any and, sense. And I agree. And the other thing is when, when critics of the government on the environmental side argue, you know, you shouldn't be approving an LNG terminal in Kitimat, and you shouldn't be allowing the construction of a natural gas pipeline through the north, the New Democrats come back and say, come on, you've got to understand that in the short to medium term, natural gas is a transition fuel. It is preferable in terms of emissions to coal and diesel. And that's why we're still going down the road. The world will continue to consume natural gas for some time to come because it takes time to transition to a completely fossil-free economy. That logic, again, doesn't seem to apply to the situation in the Okanagan. This is a 30-kilometer-long extension of an existing pipeline to serve some communities in the central Okanagan. Here's an interesting political thing. Ford has listed the, the communities in the interior that are most likely to face a shortfall if this pipeline isn't expanded. Four of them are in a riding held by the New Democrats, Vernon Monashi. So it isn't just a case of turning your back on the BC United held uh, ridings in the Okanagan, which there are several. This specifically threatens gas supplies in a riding held by the New Democrats. Okay, well, that would seem to me like a call to action, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Look, you know, another thing this government's very, very proud of is partnerships with, with Indigenous people. Well, this project was held up for a few months while Fortis could negotiate a deal with the Penticton Indian Band in whose traditional territory the expansion is located. And they made a deal. They reached agreement on a mutual benefit sharing agreement. Well, thanks to the Utilities Commission, that's on hold as well because there's no benefits to be shared because the project isn't going ahead. So, you know, we see these kinds of projects where, you know, cabinet ministers show up 
with indigenous leaders and private companies, and they say, hey, it's great. We've lined up $327 million of private sector investment in BC, and it's a transition fuel, and we've got First Nations partnership. It's the sort of thing the government should be celebrating. I think what we're seeing right now, Simi, they haven't said anything about this decision. They're trying to figure out what the heck to say about it. Perhaps the government is surprised that the Utilities Commission went this far and put this project on hold. That's entirely possible. That sounds about right. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. There's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Food manufacturers love to jump on a food trend. I mean, tell us something is healthy and all of a sudden you are seeing it everywhere in every product on the grocery store shelf. Our Scott Chance is with us now to talk more about this. I I keep thinking back, remember when oat bran was supposed to be really healthy and then all of a sudden oat bran's everywhere? Like blueberries are good for you. Blueberries are in everything. What's the latest superfood? Right? And then it shows up everywhere. Yeah, and we've seen that same sort of thing with labeling. You know, there was a while there that it was everything had to be organic or natural. And we went through this process of what does that even mean for something to be organic? What qualifies it? Who's allowed to use those words? We went through this whole process. And now, Simi, you can add the words plant-based to that same sort of category of what do these words even mean? They're starting to show up on everything, like your clothing, plant-based clothing, plant-based, I don't know, iPhone. The word is being attached to to just everything, and it kind of felt like it's lost some of its meaning. So I got in touch with Dr. Simon Isom. He is the executive director of a company called Food Frontier. They're at a think tank in Australia. They focus on food security, environment, health, that type of thing, to sort of try to get some more understanding of what that word plant-based actually even means. Well, there's two ways of looking at this, Scott. I mean, first of all, Plant-based has become the kind of new version of natural. So that term, everything was natural. All this uses natural ingredients, which was very vague and very ill-defined. Now people are sort of cottoned on to calling it plant-based. So you're getting some ridiculous extremes like talking about this is plant-based furniture, i.e. it's wooden, you know, because wood comes from trees, which are plants. So, of course, those things are a bit ridiculous. But in, in the context of food, um, plant-based has a, has a very long history and a very significant and important meaning. And when we talk about plant-based, very often it's only meaningful when we use it as an adjective, plant-based something, as a qualifier for something. And most commonly, we talk about a plant-based diet. And a plant-based diet is one where um, the majority of the food you eat, and if you put your entirety of your food for the day on a giant plate and looked at it, more than 50% would be recognizable as plants, as fruits and vegetables as they come out of the ground or off the trees or whatever. You would look at them and recognize them as plants, and you cook them, but you are eating fundamentally the plants. Now, why is that different from eating a plant product? Well, in a plant-based diet, we try to move away from eating things um, which are derived from plants, but are highly processed. So for example, breads, donuts, pies, um, and other things that use wheat, but that wheat is not eaten in the form that it comes out of the ground. It's not eaten as a whole grain. So a plant-based diet emphasizes that you actually eat things recognizable as plants, as fruits and vegetables, as opposed to derived from plants. But that's where some of the issues over meaning have come from, because we are, um, you know, we're now people are people are usurping that term plant-based 
to talk about anything where the original source was a plant, even though the end product is far removed from looking anything like a plant. Is there any sort of like regulatory board or system that uh, someone has to qualify for in order to call a product plant-based? In short, the answer is no. Um, And even other terms, and of course you'll have seen in the press, um, concerns from various industries about using the term milk to describe things like oat milk and almond milk and people claiming ownership of those terms, even the term meat and the meat industry pushing back on manufacturers calling things plant-based meat. So no, there's no regulation um, in any of those industries around our use of terms like plant-based or our use of terms like um, milk or meat. There are some regulations about the term organic, but actually when you when you look into that, that is very vague. But plant-based, no. And we rely on those industries t- tend to be self-regulating. So how, as a consumer, should people filter this when they see things like, yeah, like plant-based donuts or plant-based meats. How, how do you, and how do you find that most people sort of filter the, the vagueness there? Well, I think again, it comes back to using the term plant-based as a qualifier to actually tell you that something is contrary to what you might think it would be. So a plant-based milk, for example, then that's obvious. Most of us understand milk is coming from a dairy cow. So a plant-based milk said, oh, hang on, this doesn't come from a dairy cow. So when it's used appropriately in that sense as, a, as an adjective that's a qualifier for something that you have a different perception of normally, then I think it's very valuable for the consumer. When it's overused to simply try to talk about something as being natural, organic or whatever else, I think it gets very confusing. What do you see as the future of this part of the industry? Do you feel like we maybe will see some regulation? Where do you see the plant-based industry in in the future? Yeah, look, I I think trying to create misinformation, disinformation isn't anything new, particularly when we're trying to sell somebody something. Um, So I don't think there's anything different about what we're seeing at the moment. What we're simply seeing is that there is a very strong interest and focus for all sorts of reasons, environmental reasons, health reasons, um, uh, ethical reasons, why people are becoming more and more interested in things that are derived from plants because they see them as being less uh, damaging to the environment, whether that's true or not, they're seen as less damaging to the environment, possibly healthier, and going back to our original sort of source materials. So in terms of this industry of things being plant-based, particularly in the food sector, I think we're going to see growth. All the evidence around the world is that this is growing and whilst it might have had a bit of a correction, is going to continue to grow. And we're seeing all sorts of now um, strong associations between food and climate change, where previously in, for example, the US in research done last year showed that all of the the media coverage of climate change, only 7% mentioned food as a contributing factor. Most talked about fossil fuels, of course. Um, But we're now seeing an increased focus on our food systems around the impact they're having on the environment. So I think as people become more aware of this, I actually think that that search for an understanding of plant-based and how important it is to harvest the plants that humans can consume instead of feeding all our crops to animals, I think will become stronger and more important. That's Dr. Simon Esom. He is the executive director of a company called Food Frontier. They focus on food and sustainability, environment and health, those type of things. Interesting how he said, use it as a qualifier. It tells you that something is not what you think it is. Right. I always, whenever I see that label, 
I always stop and I look at it and I think about it and I go, oh, wait a minute. This is plant-based regardless of right. whatever label that they stick on this. This is dumb. Right. Uh, yeah. It's just them trying to get us to believe that this is good for us. Right. It's a, it's a marketing technique. Like, yeah, I love how he said plant-based furniture. Well, yeah, it's wood. Right? Yeah, of course, it it's plant-based. Trees. That, that's so tough. <laughs> it's interesting to sort of peel this back because I think that, I, like, I'll admit, it, I'm like, oh, this is plant-based. I should buy it. It's organic. I should buy it. You know, no. but it's a trick. It's a trick. It is absolutely a trick, uh, and I'm glad to see that we are telling people, no, 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 look past that. You got it. Think about that for a second, Scott. Thank you. Sure thing. This is mornings with Simi. So we are expecting another week of crazy weather, this time freezing rain, uh, potential for ice pellets, snow, and of course, just plain rain as the temperatures slowly warm up. And I don't, warm is actually not the right word. It just means it's going to go up by a, a few degrees, really. While it might be nice to have a few cold days, though, so people can skate and experience some winter here, there's also so many questions. Like, why is this happening if we're supposed to be in an El Nino year? It was supposed to be a very mild winter, and here we have these record-breaking cold temperatures temperatures. And why is this happening if things are actually getting, you know, warmer according to recorded temperatures? Well, we thought let's talk a little bit about that. Joining us now is Dr. Brenda Eckwurzel, who's a senior climate scientist and director of climate science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Dr. Eckwurzel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, You must be getting a lot of questions about this right now, about how can we have these record-breaking cold temperatures when we're supposed to be in a warming trend? It really is counterintuitive, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> we did have the record-breaking year, as you noted, and but that does not mean that we don't have winter in different places and times of the year. But what you are experiencing is something that is also linked to a climate change event. Um, it's been happening since the 1990s that the Arctic region is warming several times faster than the global average. We call it Arctic amplification. And that creates changes that basically allow the refrigerator door of the Arctic to spill out and go much lower latitudes in the Northern Hemisphere than it typically did in the past. So is this part of the kind of extreme weather that we hear about? Yes. it's. I could connect some dots for you, but essentially what we've seen in this Arctic amplification is that we have less sea ice, floating ice in the Arctic Ocean, and more moisture is available to drop snow in the Eurasian sector of the Arctic. And what this does is because when you go into the winter months, the Arctic's warmer than it was in the past. And this destabilizes and weakens um, this ring that would keep the cold air up in the Arctic. And it weakens and it spills out and it actually affects the jet stream. And the pattern of that jet stream can be wavier and allow cold air to come deep into the United States, say, in parts of southern Canada and uh, other parts of, you know, Eurasia as well in the northern hemisphere. And that means that you could freeze uh, f- fruit crops that, typically expect to be warm in past decades, but because of climate change, they're now having freeze warnings. So we have very big extremes. 
Plus, at the same time, you can have parts of the Arctic way warmer than in the past because not only is cold, there's these big upswings of the jet stream. So you got to pay attention to your weather forecaster and the positions of those jet streams. Well, that's what I was wondering is if, if we see, can we see that happening? I mean, I know we had some notice on this, you know, we got a heads up that, oh, this is happening next week. But is there any more notice that can be given? Can we see this happening? Yes, and there are scientists that are actively informing all the weather forecasts that you have. There are many people that specialize in this and are looking at the October snow cover in the Eurasian sector of, uh, you know, the northern parts of Europe and and Russia. Um, And that uh, starts setting us up for letting us know what the season is going to be like. But you have to pay attention every two weeks, these outlooks, uh, how they change and, ha- and the pattern of the jet stream is something that we're getting better at warning people about and giving earlier uh, planning. But the problem is people are very used to warmer, because of climate change, warmer winters. When you don't have this cold snap, it can, it can uh, be something that people get their old patterns of having to right. deal with such extreme snow can make people more vulnerable and, and it's actually can be more dangerous. These it, are very, very cold temperatures and life-threatening. Oh boy, they sure are. It feels a bit like whiplash, I think, for people, right? Like just two weeks ago, we were talking about, oh, we see the spring bulbs coming up and, oh, places like, you know, Minnesota are not having the same temperatures and then this hits there. It's hard to adjust when it happens like that. You really hit the, you hit the, the core of the heart of climate change is that the extremes are getting more extreme and they're more frequent. So it is a bit of back and forth and it's hard for us to adjust. Uh, However, if we figure out how to keep each other safe and keep each other warned with all the satellite information, shows like you're having here and telling people this is really real and pay attention because it's not your grandparents' storm. It certainly is not. Not with these records that we've broken here. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Okay, thank you. That's Dr. Brenda Eckerzel, who's a senior climate scientist and director of uh, climate science for the Climate Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, talking about these storms, these these kind of wild swings that we've been having in in, in temperature there. And certainly, I mean, we're talking record-breaking temperatures here, cold as we have ever been able to see it here. I talked about how in in some communities on January the 13th, like it was Salmon Arm, I think, Revelstoke, um, and Cranbrook, they had the coldest temperatures that they had seen in more than 100 years. They broke a record that had stood since 1911. And those are some very, very cold temperatures. This is Mornings with Simi. Record-breaking cold temperatures right across Western Canada, wreaking havoc in all sorts of ways. We've been hearing about burst pipes. That's causing a huge problem right now. And of course, we've got these demands on our heating infrastructure. We know that BC Hydro has reported a record high amount of electricity usage, particularly on Friday. But BC Hydro also says that it did not require any imports from the electricity market. Not only that, Hydro says it was able to provide power to Alberta as that province's grid system had two emergency alerts on the weekend asking people to limit their consumption. But this weather-related kind of stress on the system has definitely brought up the question, how are we going to manage in the future with our push to further electrify everything if we can't always manage 
now, you know, in a cold snap or a heat dome, for instance. And we want all these electric vehicles, and yet they don't perform their best either when it comes to charging in this cold weather. We'll talk more about that later on the show. But right now, Josie Osborne is BC's Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation and joins us to talk more about this issue. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, we wanted to talk about energy policy here. Did you see anything to be concerned about with this cold snap right now? Well, the cold snap obviously brings a a lot of risk to people and to communities, and we saw that uh, throughout British Columbia. But what is just amazing to see is how resilient our energy system is and the exceptional planning that BC Hydro undertook. So we were able to not only meet our needs over this cold snap during the weekend, but we also were able to deliver some clean and, and affordable, reliable hydroelectricity to our neighbours at a time when they needed it most. Okay, but we know that's not always the case. Last year, BC Hydro had to import power too. So what was so different about this time versus other situations? Well, importing and exporting power is common. It happens uh, every day, every month, every year for BC Hydro. And uh, in fact, over the last five years, BC Hydro has been a, a net exporter of electricity. So this is a way we can work with our partners in you know, Alberta or down into California, for example. And during the day, we can import uh, solar energy that's being generated in California. But then, of course, the sun isn't shining at night and they need some energy. So we have this very firm power that's stored in our reservoirs and we're able to export that energy. The fact that BC Hydro can do that means that it helps us keep the rates affordable for people exporting power that way. The last year, though, it's an absolutely unprecedented event with the, the level of drought we've experienced. And we have experienced drought before. BC Hydro plans for this and has a number of ways that they address it. But this past year, of course, we were a net importer of electricity to help manage that and balance the load throughout BC. Okay, so given that, can this province handle being further electrified if that's going to put more of a strain on the system? Yes, we certainly can. And in fact, that's a a central tenet to BC Hydro's planning. So using integrated resource planning, they look at the different scenarios for electrification in the coming years. And we know For example, we're going to see increased electrification across the economy. And it's not just transportation with people switching to electric vehicles or with heating like uh, heat pumps that people use in their homes. But we're also going to see new industrial uses of electricity like new mines or electrifying our ports. So with demand that's anticipated to increase between now and 2030, there's a number of things that are already well underway. And of course, most people are familiar with Site C, for example. And when that's up and running in the next couple of years, it's going to add enough power for 450,000 homes or 1.7 million vehicles. There's a call for power coming in just a few months that we'll see even more power coming into our grids in 2028, 2029. And of course, that's expected to be just the first in a series of calls as BC Hydro requires more power to electrify the economy and meet those climate goals that we all have. Let's talk about diversification here, too. We were speaking with Vaughn Palmer this morning. He was telling us about a a natural gas pipeline upgrade that was turned down in the Okanagan, even though they need the power within the next couple of years. Why aren't we making sure that we have capacity and diversification? Well, we, we are, and we know that we need to ensure that we've got reliable and affordable energy, and it's there to power homes and businesses. And I think the cold snap we just experienced really underscores that. There are many different ways of doing this. And so especially while technology is evolving very rapidly in this space and homes are becoming more energy efficient, 
So the proposal uh, put forward by Fortis, for example, for a new pipeline was just one of those. And uh, they'll be working to come back to the BC Utilities Commission and look at some other options. But we're going to continue working with electric and gas utilities on how we best use the different energy systems that we have to provide this affordable and clean power for people. The call for power, the competitive call for power that's coming this spring we expect to see solar, uh, wind, utility-scale batteries. These are all important components of an energy system that can continue to deliver that really reliable and affordable energy that British Columbians need. Okay, so you're saying that Fortis will be coming back with a different proposal that perhaps will be looked at differently? Yeah, that's right. Fortis has, uh, the BCUC has actually directed Fortis to develop some additional short-term mitigation solutions and they'll file, a, they can file a revised proposal uh, by uh, July 31st. So we'll see more about that. Okay. So the plan that you were referencing there, is there something bigger coming to talk about diversification in the province? Well, the diversification, we already have quite a diversified energy system that way with with gas grid we have with the clean electricity that we have but of course our focus really is on decarbonization and we want to lessen our dependency on fossil fuels and uh, lower our greenhouse gas emissions electrical um, power also offers the ability to be more efficient so when people make the switch to heat pumps in their homes they are drawing less during peak times that helps all british columbians um, when we manage the load like we've seen in this past weekend for example and that switch to heat pumps, of course, makes a, um, sense for folks who are looking for cooling in the summer as well and, and uh, often can result in lower energy bills for people. So we'll continue to see renewables like solar, wind, utility-scale batteries, hydroelectric, run of river, and then, of course, that's uh, being able to integrate all of that and uh, meet those climate goals is everybody's um, hope. Now, when people see what is happening in Alberta, and we talked a lot about that over the weekend, what we want to know is, could that happen here? It's important to understand some big differences between BC and Alberta. And first of all, we have this large hydroelectric system that really is the backbone of our energy system. So that makes us very resilient and able to integrate intermittent and renewable sources like wind and solar into the grid more easily. So we can take advantage when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining, but then at nighttime or when it's not windy, we've got this big hydroelectric system that backs us up. And that's effectively like a big battery and it's firm and reliable power. So you combine that with the way that we trade energy and import and export at the right times, and British Columbians can continue to depend on the reliable electricity that we see from BC Hydro. Okay, so were you concerned when you saw what was happening in Alberta? Well, I'm definitely concerned for Albertans. I think uh, it's important for all Canadians, in fact, people around the world, to be able to have the energy that they need to heat their homes and to cook food and to... Uh, undertake life as we know it. And uh, so knowing that we were able to help Alberta is a, a really positive thing. And I think it's something that all British Columbians should be very proud of. Right. But our system, what you're saying is our system is different from theirs. Our system is different from our, theirs because, of course, we've got the, the rivers and the big dams that Alberta just doesn't have. And so we're able to uh, depend on that, those big water batteries effectively um, to run the backbone of our system. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. You're so welcome, Simi. Have a good day. That's Josie Osborne, BC's Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. Obviously, energy policy, a big topic today, given what we've seen with this cold snap and the impact it's having. Over the weekend in Alberta, they had 
not one, but two emergency alerts that went out to the public asking them to lower their energy consumption immediately because of the strain on the system uh, to prevent them having to put limits or potentially like a rolling blackout essentially uh, because of the strain on their grid. BC, BC Hydro in particular, was able to send power to Alberta to assist as Saskatchewan did as well. And so there are obviously a lot of questions like, are we going to be able to manage our own electricity uh, if there are strains on our system and what are we going to do in times like that this is mornings with simi um you know i i get the city of surrey doesn't like my decision but you don't take it out on uh hard-working police officers who want to serve their community and are excited about doing so that was Solicitor General and Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth talking to us on Friday about the latest situation, the latest twist and turn involving the Surrey Police Service. Ten new recruits were not getting their paychecks because it is claimed the city of Surrey has not provided the budget to do so. And as you can tell there, the province none too pleased with that latest development. Now, once again, there's all this back and forth on the issue, right? But now you've got actual officers kind of being caught in the middle of this. So what does the city have to say about the minister's comments on this and all of this back and forth? Well, we had a chance to talk with Peter German. Mr. German is the policing consultant who represents the city of Surrey and their side of things. And here's what he said. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. First off, I'll just start with the absolute basic question here. Why isn't the city of Surrey paying new recruits? Well, the city of Surrey is paying for a lot of Surrey Police Service officers right now, but the issue with respect to 10 new hires in, I believe, January uh, relates to uh, Surrey putting the Surrey Police Board and the Police Service on notice on December 19th that they were well over budget and that they should not be hiring when there is no money left in their budget. And that's what it boils down to. So when it comes to that budget, then I'm curious, was that a budget that was for all of 2023? Because originally, I believe the city of Surrey intended to get rid of the Surrey police and only funded them for the first six months. So was that a full 2023 budget we're talking about? Well, well, I've seen that report. What I can say is that this was the 2023 budget for the police service. Had they wanted additional resources, additional money, um, then what you would normally do is go back to council and request that. And I'm not aware that they did that. Right. Well, they are claiming that they did try to do that and they didn't have a chance to do it. Oh, okay. Well, that's certainly, if that's their position, that's fine. But I mean, uh, the reality is they didn't go to council. I gather, with an additional submission. They have uh, submitted a provisional 2024 budget, which presumably takes into account what it would cost them for a year. Um, And uh, they themselves indicated it was provisional because there could be changes, I suppose, prior to um, them asking the, the city council to make a final decision. Right. It, I guess the problem I think that a lot of people have with this, Mr. German, is that it feels like now the people who are being punished are, are, are people who are wanting to work for Surrey, who want to serve their community, and they're being caught up in this political crossfire. Yeah. Well, Simi, keep in mind that Surrey is currently being policed by a full complement of police officers, uh, including approximately 200 Surrey Police Service officers working side by side with the RCMP in the RCMP detachment. So Surrey is paying for a full contingent uh, 
and and public safety is is certainly not an issue now the surrey police board and service were put on notice <laughs> don't be hiring when you don't have money to pay these people is basically what what you know they were told on december 19th and they went ahead and did it um, it's not as if um, you know, we are below strength at the detachment and that they needed 10 more people. Uh, uh, that's not the case. And my understanding is that the people hired um, were a combination of individuals uh, scheduled to go into training so they would not be available to work the front line as well as uh, retired officers uh, being brought in, uh, fairly senior officers. Uh, again, in all likelihood, not to work the front line, right. which is what, what is required. Is this not part of the policing plan, though, the whole transition plan that has the province has said this is what you have to do? Well, the word plan is interesting because there really is no plan. And I think the mayor has made that clear uh, a number of times. There is no plan from the Surrey Police Service how they intend to deploy resources. Um, there is no plan with respect to the transfer of uh, assets, in, in particular uh, IT assets, which is critical to any police op operation. Um, there are a lot of unanswered questions um, in, in terms of, well, for example, um, will the RCMP officers that remain at the detachment until Surrey can ramp itself up, are they going to be working for the police board? Is that legally possible? You know, so there are all these are questions. There is no plan or master plan um, and and but it, Mr. Mr. Durbin, doesn't a plan yeah. require cooperation? Like one side can't come up with a plan. I mean, everybody has to sit down at the table, and it just feels like for Surrey residents and people watching this, it seems like the adults all need to sit down now, all sides, whether they agree with this or not, and work this out. Well, um, I mean, there definitely has been a lot of back and forth, um, no question about it. But you know. Surrey requires a plan from the Surrey Police Board and the Surrey Police Service, and they don't have that. Uh, certainly a plan can be, there can be discussion about the plan, in all likelihood there won't be immediate agreement, but you need a plan. And uh, right now, uh, Surrey Police Service has, as I understand, well over a hundred resources sitting back at their office doing different things, but not frontline policing. And they're being paid. Uh, this is in addition to a full complement at the detachment. Is Surrey willing to come to the table then to figure these details out? Because I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, so I, I guess it depends what you mean by to the table, Simi. What I mean I is, is, is the mayor and Surrey Council willing to say, okay, let's figure this out. This has gone on long enough. What's it going to take to solve this problem? So, you know, Surrey um, and, and Surrey Council have been dealing with this for a number of years. It is the province that has decided, uh, you know, it, it, it wants to proceed uh, with a transition that the municipality through its councillors, the majority of council, does not want. Um, so That's a no then? That's the reality of the situation. So you don't see any negotiations or cooperation happening in the future? Oh, I can't say that. There, there may well be, and uh, I, I think the mayor is a has always been, um, you know, uh, very forthcoming, and uh, uh, she talks uh, to everybody. Um, she attends forums regularly. She talks to the, the public. She talks to Surrey police officers. I mean, that's not, not an issue. It's not as if people aren't talking. 
do you think this impacts whether or not people, whether it's RCMP or Surrey police, whether officers want to come and work in Surrey? Well, I mean, I can't put myself in the minds of other people, but what I can tell you, once again, is you have a full contingent of police officers that continue to serve the city, and they have been doing so despite all of what's been going on for the last number of years. You've got well over 500 RCMP officers working the streets and looking after the citizens of Surrey, and you have over 200 SPS officers who are working with them. Uh, they continue to do that. I, I'm sure, you know, with all, uh, you know, all, all this background noise, so to speak, cannot be, uh, you know, nobody's happy about it, but it is a reality. And, and I, it, it seems to me that the police officers do their job. And, and uh, you know, again, public safety has never been an issue. Mr. German, thank you for your time this morning. Simi, you're most welcome. That's Peter German, policing consultant for the city of Surrey. So that is the city of Surrey's perspective on this latest round of developments on what has happened. I know it, it is a mess. Like, it seems like a simple question to say, can't we all just get an agreement? Can't you all just sit down like grownups are supposed to do and work out your agreements, work, like work out your differences, work out everything, come to an agreement for the sake of of the city of Surrey, for the people of Surrey, for the residents of Surrey. Can't you all just, as you know, Gore McDonald used to love to say, put your big boy pants on, sit down and do this. And you know what? Apparently not. Apparently that was the answer there. Just nothing but, oh, I don't know, but what about this? What about that? No, no. The time for all that is done. Sit down and get this done. Because, yes, you are talking about the future reputation of policing in your city, whether it, they go to the Surrey Police Service, which it looks by all intents and purposes they're going to, or as the mayor wants to stay with the Surrey RCMP. Who would want to work in policing in Surrey, whether it is the police service or the RCMP, with the way officers are being treated right now with this back and forth? And for that reason alone, they need to sit down at the table and get this done. Now, Surrey residents, I'm sure you'd love to sound off on this. And and that's my point here is regardless of what side you come down on, it is time to put all that aside and sit down and get this thing negotiated and settled. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Very cold paradise out there, that's for sure. Now, I drive a plug-in hybrid. I tell you, I really noticed something in the last three or four days since the cold hit. The charge is just not what it was a, a few days ago. It is charging at a lower level, and it's taking way longer to even get to that point, which got me thinking about electric vehicles in general. Certainly, electric vehicle owners must be seeing and feeling the impact of this cold on your on the range that your car gets, on how long it takes to charge, and seeing a lot of chatter about that on social media too, which makes you wonder, well, if we're you know, pushing everybody to buy an electric vehicle, what happens when there is this very cold weather? So we thought, let's talk about the performance of electric vehicles in very cold weather. Joining us now is Harry Constantine. Harry is the president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. Harry, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. How's your car doing in this weather? Uh, my, my car is getting about uh, 60 to 70% of the range that it was getting. Uh, and, uh, and I don't have charging at home. Uh, so my, uh, public charging using the, the fast chargers, that is, is a little bit reduced as well. Okay. So were you surprised by that? Like, is this the first time you've experienced that with your electric vehicle? 
No, not at all. Um, I, I've had my car now about four years um, and often go on, on winter road trips without any issue. And you just you just plan uh, plan around it accordingly. Um, the, the longer charging just means uh, it you're still going to be able to get to where you need to go. It's just going to take you just a little bit longer on those charging times when you are going those distances. And and really, it's it's the difference of maybe an, an additional forty minutes on a trip to say Camlinx uh, uh, Corner or beyond. Right. Do you think, though, Harry, when people are still trying to be convinced to buy an electric vehicle, is this the kind of thing that perhaps holds them back? For sure, and I think it's it, it's really an issue that once you have an electric vehicle, you realize it isn't really that much of an issue. Um, so, for example, all the, the the cars that are coming out today, um, the newer models of cars, their charging rates are so fast uh, during the summer that it's almost inconvenient because you have to run back to the charger and unplug it. Um, whereas uh, in the winter, you do get a little bit more uh, more time because it, it is that charging slow. Um, but in terms of range, uh, realistically, Canadians always overestimate where how far it is that we're driving on a daily basis. You know, the average daily commutes in Vancouver are under 40 kilometers. Um, and with a 500-kilometer range car, you're getting 300 kilometers of range uh, at a like, minimum in the winter. Uh, in, these, in these cold spells, not a typical Vancouver winter, then you know, 300, that's enough for you to go back and forth to work for, for two weeks on one charge. If we're able to charge at home, then that's really a non-issue. And, and really charging at home and keeping that battery nice and warm and comfortable right. um, is, is what we what we want to do with our EVs. Right. So, Harry, we're we're dealing with this, I think, in Metro Vancouver as a boy. This doesn't happen very often, situation, right? <laughs> but yep. what you're talking about, other jurisdictions where they live with this kind of cold regularly in the winter time, is an electric vehicle. Do you think right for everybody? Is it right for everyone? Uh, it really depends on their current. Uh, on this situation, probably there are some exceptions just based on the vehicles that are available today. When we look at down the road and, and the vehicles that are coming down the road, um, then it's it becomes a lot more feasible. Canadians are also very used to plugging in their vehicles. Um, you know, if we look at like Manitoba, the prairies, and uh, Alberta, plugging in your car uh, in the winter to stop to keep the engine block warm. It's pretty typical, and you can do the exact same thing with an with an EV. You drive into a place and, and plug it in. Canadians also leave their, their vehicles idling a lot in winter um, to to keep that engine engine running. Whereas if we can just plug it in, um, it will it will keep that battery nice and warm. Do you feel like perhaps there's been a lot of discussion about this right now with the weather that weighs? Are you having to have this discussion with a lot of people? <laughs> uh, it's. It, Less so this year than in other years. I think uh, as we've seen EV adoption grow, uh, we're seeing uh, we're seeing these questions uh, louder but fewer. If that makes any sense at all. Hmm, okay, so the, I guess is it a given then that if it's cold like this, you will see reduced range? Yeah, the the the, the way batteries work. I'm sure most people have had their phone uh, die on them in the cold. Um, the way batteries work is they, they do like to be that kind of warm, um, warm temperature. The nice thing with 
uh, EVs that are compared to a gas car is they will keep themselves at that warm temperature. And that's why you can see uh, this like ghost draw uh, kind of overnight. You'll see some range disappear and you'll wonder why, but it's uh, the battery is kind of keeping itself warm. Um, and that's where a lot of these uh, these losses are uh, can be attributed to is, is keeping themselves warm. So keeping that car plugged in negates that. Yeah, let's talk about the advice that you would have for people in this cold if they are new to this. Uh, what what should they be doing? Yeah, so planning a few extra stops on your on your road trips if you're going on those on those longer trips. Um, the network is built such that you can go um, those long trips uh, with the reduced range. It was set up for much older cars, uh, so that would be one thing. The other thing is keeping it plugged in at home. Whether you can. Uh, keep that plugged in on even just a, a 110 wall outlet um, or if you uh, have a charger at home, just keeping it plugged in, keeping it topped up, that um, having it plugged in is going to allow the car to draw power from um, from the grid very slowly just to keep that battery warm even if even if the battery is full. Um, so it will just kind of keep its, itself nice and warm. Right. So be prepared essentially. Just it's not the It's not a miracle answer to everything. You're going to have to look after it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like uh, just like you plug in your phone at night, plug in your car, um, and it will and it will keep itself nice and warm and and look after you that way. Right? Are you wor- a little worried though, Harry, with this all the stories about this right now and all the concerns? Do you think this might turn people off? They might think, "Oh, see, no electric vehicles aren't the answer." You know, it, I, I I always think back to uh, back to Snowmageddon a, a couple of years ago here in in Metro Vancouver and all the cars that 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 ran out of gas on the side of the road. Um, I, I didn't hear of, of an EV running out of gas because uh, we, when we think about um, cars and how they, they use energy, the majority of their energy uh, is used uh, to push that car forward. But in a gas car, you're using energy just to keep yourself warm um, when idling uh, and keeping the engine warm when, when idling. So there's, there's, a, there's so many elements to this story uh to to go into but i i think it's it's one of those things the the real thing that gets people into uh an electric vehicle is getting into an electric vehicle and driving it and experiencing that the grip the uh the traction uh the four-wheel drive systems are, are, are so far beyond um the a typical suv uh that you would see these all-wheel um drive cars that gas-powered cars that uh, it's it's really a game changer when it comes to driving uh, in the snow and ice. Well, so. well, thank you very much for your advice this morning. Appreciate that. Thank you, Simi. That is Harry Constantine, president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. So yes, if you have an electric vehicle, you have undoubtedly noticed that these kinds of temperatures means your range is not as great as it was before it got really cold and that it takes longer to charge your vehicle. And I've seen lots of stories and discussion on social media about this over the last few days about how, oh, well, look at how these electric vehicles perform in cold weather. Are they, they're not realistic for us to push everybody towards these over the next 10 years, which I know that there has been that push there. But if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.